Good morning. We're going to be reading today from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or no shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Heavenly Father, God, in these next few moments, Lord, I pray that our attention would be drawn to you, that all distractions of life, the things that we bring in this place, Lord, that we would rest in the truth of your word, and God, we would not simply forget them. It is impossible to forget them. We would not simply ignore them. For many times, those problems are difficult or even impossible to ignore. But Lord, with all the weight and struggle and things that weigh us down, Lord, you tell us in our, your word not to ignore them and not to avoid them and not to discard them. But you tell us to take all of our cares and cast them at your feet because you care for us. So, Lord, I pray this morning for all those who come into this place weary and heavy laden, that they would lay their burdens down at your feet. And, Lord, we would find rest in you and in your word this morning. May you be glorified in this time and in each life in this place. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Just by way of quick recap, two weeks ago we began in the book of James. And that just to cover this, James, of course, and we spent time on it. We can talk about it at a later date. But this James that is speaking here is, in fact, the bishop or the lead elder or the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He is also the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And he is writing to Jewish believers. If you remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, there were some 3,000 who gave their lives to Christ and were baptized into the faith. And we are told that they were Jews from all over the known world. So these are Jewish believers. And that's why he refers to them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion in chapter 1, verse 1. And after the persecution of Stephen and, and uh, subsequent martyrdom of Stephen, persecution arose in Jerusalem and all of them scattered throughout the known world. So this letter is a letter of a pastor writing to his people who are separated from him, separated from one another, and scattered throughout this world. We also talked about the fact that the emphasis of the book of James, and if there is nothing else that we grasp one of the key truths that we need to remember is that the emphasis of the book of James is not how to become a Christian, but rather how we are to now live as Christians. The pressing nature of the book of James is not what does it mean to believe, but instead 
how should we now live if we have a genuine faith? So that's the important thing for us to remember from the book of James. Now, one of the stories I find, I I will say, I think it has a note of humor, although uh, this story is probably, or it is, I don't think it's even probably, it is the worst moment in human history. So it's humorous, and I find humor in it, but it's, it's also the worst moment that has ever occurred in the history of mankind. And that would be that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were told not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because um, the day that they ate it, they would surely die. And you remember this story? Um, but the, the serpent, we know Satan, the serpent came and deceived Eve and told her, Oh, no, no, you wouldn't surely die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. And so um, the scripture says that Eve took the fruit and she ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And in that moment, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed, so they covered themselves with fig leaves. And then in the evening, in the cool of the evening, when God came um, to, to walk with Adam in the cool of the evening, he was not there where he normally was. And so God calls out and he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? Of course, God knows where he is. This is more of a statement regarding his separation from him as opposed to his geographical location. So he says, Adam, where are you? He comes out. He says, why, are, why do you look like that? And he said, well, we were naked and we were ashamed. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? And then they begin to interact, right? And they declare or, or exclaim that they have eaten of this tree, Now you remember, in that moment, something occurs that is really endemic or or built within each one of us as human beings. He is uh, The picture you've got is you've got God, he's standing there, as it were, he's standing there. You've got Adam, you've got Eve, and you've got the serpent. They're all there in this conversation. And God looks at Adam and he says, Adam, what have you done? Right? And then Adam being the, the, the stalwart, manly, godly, just fired up, holy man, says, it wasn't me, it was that woman you gave me. Right? That's actually what he says. Now, it's funny, and that's so why I said it's, it's humorous, uh, but there's an emphasis in that phrase that we need to be very uh, aware of. He says, it wasn't me, it was that woman you gave me and then of course God I love this God just lets that one go he didn't say anything he knows what's coming so he turns to Eve and he says Eve what did you do and Eve of course she owns up to this right godly woman as she is she says it wasn't me it was the serpent Right? So what, what's the deal here? Do you know that uh, my parents used to say, my parents, I have, a, I have a younger sister and then I have a younger brother. And my parents used to say that we had four children. They had four children in their home. They had Jeremy, they had Heather, they had Jordan, and then they had their oft-quoted sibling, not me. Right? Because anytime my parents would say, who left this mess in the kitchen? Someone would say, not me. Now, how do all three people claim that it was not them? It must be that fourth sibling that's hiding somewhere, right? It's this innate thing within us to want to blame everyone else 
for our sin. It's always somebody else's fault. And it started in Genesis 3. It still happens today. So we have the tendency from the very beginning to place the blame of our sin on anyone other than ourselves. Case in point. Sometimes we do um, a, a thing called want to know on Wednesday nights where people get to send in questions. I get lots of questions. You can imagine. I get some great questions. I get some odd questions. I get everything in between. And inevitably, I will be asked this question. I've been asked this question by teenagers. I've been asked this question by children. I've been asked this question by senior adults. I've been asked this question over the years, over and over again, and it's this. When we talk about the story of the garden, someone will say, why didn't God just leave the tree out of the garden? Then this problem would never have happened. Right? You ever think that? You ever wonder, um, why, why didn't God just leave it out? Well, the thing is, is that question itself lays the blame for the fall on God. It is, in effect, saying, if God had acted differently, none of this would have happened. If he'd have just done better. Right? I have an idea about how this could have gone better if God would have just consulted me. That's the root of that statement, right? That's the root of that question. It's God's fault. Why? Well, it's certainly not Adam's fault. It's certainly not Eve's fault. See, it's our tendency to blame God, to blame others, to try to avoid the truth that when it comes to our sin, we have no one to blame but ourselves. See, what we see in this passage this morning is sin is our problem and blessing is his purview sin is our problem and blessing is his purview now without taking too much time i'll let you know that i really split this section up into two because he is in fact still speaking this is this these verses that you just heard um, brother brian read uh, these verses are still set clearly within the context of trials and difficulties um, he, he hasn't shifted gears yet. He hasn't changed subject matter yet. We know this because in verse 12 it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted. There's no, there's no break there. There's no stop there. He's still talking about the same thing. See, when things get hard, this is how they connect. Because when we're talking about trials and difficulties, as we talked about two weeks ago, we don't naturally think about sin. We don't think about the root of sin and the, the origin of sin. And yet no one can deny that when things get hard, when difficulties happen, when the fires of suffering get hot, it can be easy for us to justify sinful thoughts or activities. No one can deny that sin... Many times, according to the author of Hebrews, he refers to it as the sin that so easily entangles us. It rears its ugly head when life gets difficult, when we let down our guard, or as it were, we simply pop it into neutral and coast. And in that moment, trials come, hardship comes, difficulty comes, and it can be easy to grow bitter Toward others. When suffering occurs, we begin to try and justify sinfulness. We say things either out loud or in our own hearts. We say things like, 
Well, with what I'm going through, I should be allowed to fill in the blank. We learned last week that trials for believers are meant to test and to purify our faith. And that's something the Lord is certainly doing in each of us. However, the Holy Spirit knows our tendency. Started all the way, as I said, all the way back in Genesis 3. And because of that, we hear that we have trials and difficulties and hardship because God wants to, is, he's, he's testing the steadfastness of our faith and producing maturity. And, and when it has full grown, it produces perfection. Right? That's, he's trying to, he's doing those things in us. And because God is doing those things in us, the Holy Spirit, of course, knows our tendency to say something like, well, if God uses trials and tribulations to strengthen me, then when I sin in the midst of difficult times, I can't really be held accountable for what I've done. It's somebody else's fault. It's this difficult, difficult situation. Well, I mean, I wouldn't normally do this, but things have just been really hard lately. So, X, Y, Z. See, when things get hard, it's our tendency to want to find someone else to blame for our sin. But it's also, but we want to blame everyone else for our trial. We want to say, well, this world or, or this person or whatever. And yet, the, uh, James tells us at the beginning, right, that whenever we experience trials and difficulties, we're supposed to consider it pure joy when we encounter these things. So, if we can't be angry... At God for our trials. And we, when we sin and we rebel in the midst of our trials, we, we try to look for someone to blame. We can't find anyone to blame. We're certainly not going to blame ourselves. So maybe we can blame God. However, this simply is not how temptation and sin work. God is, is very clear here in this passage. Just like the first section we looked at in James, we can't escape trials, but we can thrive in and through them. And if you are going to thrive through trials, then the first thing you see here is that you've got to recognize the nature of your own heart. You've got to recognize the nature of your own heart. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Let no one say, this is a command. In English it sounds soft, but it's actually a command. Don't ever say this. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. See, what is God's purpose in trials and difficulties? Well, he tells us in this passage, God's purpose of tri in trials and difficulties is to, is to test our faith, is to purify our faith, is to strengthen our faith. To then bring about maturity in us. So that's God's purpose with us. And James says, let no one say when they are tempted, I am being tempted by God for. Now he's about to give us the reason as to why we can't say this. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Temptation is beyond the pale with God. He, he does not do that. Why? Without getting into too much of the detail, I'll say this. Sin, the root of Adam and Eve's sin, 
is that they believed that God, they were convinced by the serpent, they were deceived by the serpent, into believing that God was somehow withholding something good from them. That God was somehow keeping the truth from them. He'd only told them part of it. Because you remember when the serpent told them, when he deceived them, he said, no, 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 you won't surely die. He just doesn't want you to have this because he knows in the day you eat it, you will become like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. So what is the root of Satan's deception? He's saying, oh, no, that's not true. He's just telling you that because he doesn't want what's best for you. He's withholding it from you. But I know that there's something better for you. But here's the thing. What's the root of sin? What is sin? If we were to boil it all down in that moment, sin is determining that I know better than God does about what's best for me. Or to put it in another simple way, sin is choosing myself over God. It's choosing me and my thoughts and my opinions over God. Now, here's the problem. God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot choose something over himself. He is the greatest being in existence. For God to choose anything above his own glory and his own purposes would make God an idolater. See, when you and I put ourselves or anything else above God in our minds, we become idolaters. If God was to put anything above himself in his mind, he himself would become an idolater because he would be looking at or, or acknowledging or worshiping something less than himself. So God cannot be tempted, nor, as he says here, does he tempt anyone. Okay, so what is, what is James arguing here? Because this is all one argument. James says, look, when you experience trials and difficulties, don't, don't, don't begrudge them, but instead, consider it pure joy. Why? Because you know, that's what he says, right? Knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience, and patience, when it has reached its full culmination, it produces maturity or perfection. So you, you can't get angry. That's what he's saying. Believer, you can't get angry about hardship and difficulty. That doesn't mean you have to smile and laugh and enjoy yourself. It just means that you need to consider it joyful. But he says, okay, so then when we sin in the midst of those difficult times, don't look at it and say, when you're tempted to sin, well, God is tempting me. He said, God doesn't do that. God's purpose in your suffering and in your trials is not to see you fall. He's going to tell us that in a minute. God's purpose, hear me, God's purpose in your suffering and your difficulty is not to see you fall. It is to watch you grow and to become more like his son. Therefore, when he says, God's not tempting you, it's not his goal to see you fail. He's not up there going, let's see if he can handle this one. That's not the way it works. He says, no, that's not it. So then it must be something else. James says, well, you, can't, you can't blame your circumstances. Why? Because you've got to consider those pure joy. You can't blame God. Why? Because he doesn't tempt, nor is he tempted. So that's not what he does. That's not what he's about. So then what does he say? He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, 
desire. When it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I heard Alistair Begg. You know, many of you know that Alistair Begg is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, preacher to listen to. And Alistair Begg said it this way. Sin is an inside job. That's probably the best way to describe what James just said. Sin is an inside job. See, we have a tendency since Genesis 3 to blame our sin on everybody else. But what James says is, hey, when you're in struggle and difficulty, consider those things pure joy because it's making you more like Jesus. And when you're tempted to sin, don't blame God. It's not God's fault. You sin. What does he say? But we sin. Each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desire. So where does the temptation come from? It comes from inside us. It comes from the root of Genesis 3, right? In Genesis 3, what was Satan's lie to them? No, no, no. It's not that something bad will happen. It's that God's trying to keep something good from you. So when we experience something in our lives where we are tempted to sin, it's because somewhere inside of us we believe that there's something better that we're being kept from or is being kept from us. So within the purview of a marital relationship, when you feel the, this desire and you're drawn away, it's because you believe, you're convinced by the evil one and by your own sin and brokenness that there is something better beyond what God has already given you. You're enticed by your own desires. not somebody else's fault. It's your own fault because you have convinced yourself that there is something better outside of that. It could be anything. It could be any type of sin, any type of sin. Because look what he says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It, it's not just, we hear the word desire nowadays, we think sexual in nature, but it could really be anything. It could be anything at all. When we believe that something is being withheld from us and there's something better for us, we're drawn away. So what is the root of temptation? God is not the author of temptation. Temptation comes because of you and I and our own brokenness. Our own weakness. You look at verse 14, the ESV, I love the way it says this. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. I enjoy fishing. I don't enjoy bass fishing. I, I, if I want an arm workout, I'll just go lift weights. I, I don't enjoy just casting and casting and casting. and cast. That gets old real quick. I enjoy more like old school, like cat fishing, put some stink bait on, drop it, take a nap, and when something pulls, you just pull it up. That's more my kind of fishing. And, um, but my father-in-law is a big bass fisherman. He really enjoys it, and he's got thousands upon thousands of lures. And when you throw a lure, you only do it for a minute. And if that's not working, what do you do? Pull it out, switch colors, switch shapes, switch types. You're constantly changing it up. Why? Because you're trying to figure out, you'll hear fishermen say this, right? You're just trying to figure out what they want today. What are they hungry for? What are they desiring? And the moment you get it right, you throw it out there, it hits the water, pow, they hit it. Why? Because that was what they were looking for. That's what he says here about Temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, 
Desire is not a bad thing. You can desire food. Well, that's normal for every human being to desire food. But gluttony is a sin. So a desire can be easily made into a bad thing when you feel that you're not getting enough or you're being, you're being with, something's being withheld from you. So he says, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, it's interesting, now he's using a switch of metaphors. Now it's when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So temptation is not sin. Temptation is a brokenness within that says I'm, something's being withheld from me. I need something better. So I'm going to step outside of God's design to take that in. At that moment, you've gone from temptation to sin. Because you have stepped outside of it. So he says, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when uh, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It brings forth death. See, you notice that sin and death are a part of a sequence of events. They're a part of a sequence of events that occur, but they all began with the desire that went unchecked and uncontrolled. Why? Because when things get hard, remember context of trials, when things get hard, when things get difficult, we pop it into neutral, we're focused on our problems, we're not thinking about ourselves. And in that moment, something's thrown out in front of us, and our own desire and weakness, we are drawn to that. And when we are drawn to that and we step outside of God's design, we embrace it. And when we embrace it, it conceives and gives birth to sin. And when sin, as he says here, is fully grown, it brings forth death. So the, the simple truth is, how do you avoid sin? Can you remove desires? You're human. I think that's what Paul meant in Romans 7 when he says, the things I wish to do, I do not do. And the things I wish not to do, those are the things I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of sin? I, that's what he meant when he's saying that it's still there. So can you remove the desire? Oh, heaven, oh, I wish you could. The answer is the desire is there within you. You're human, you're broken. So where's the answer? Well, the answer is this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So in that moment, check the desire. In that moment, check what's causing you to do that. Turn it over to the Lord. In that moment, don't pop it into neutral. Keep it in drive. Keep focusing on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. See, our tendency is to blame God. But it's simply... Blame shifting, right? That's all we're doing. We, we don't want to take ownerships, God's, suffer, or God's purpose in our suffering and in our trials is for our good and for his glory. Our temptation and sin come from us. Nobody else to blame. Whether it's Tom Sawyer or Flip Wilson, you can't even blame the devil. Why? Because I heard it said, this, Tony Evans says it this way. The devil may load the gun, but you're the one pulling the trigger. Sin is our problem. When we feel lack. When we feel that there's something being withheld from us. When we feel there's something better out there. Something being kept from us. Something we think we need. 
It comes from our own hearts. So if we're going to thrive through trials, then we've got to recognize the nature of our own hearts. But also, if our sin is never God's fault, which it is not, temptation never comes from God, sin happens when we, like Adam and Eve, believe there is some good that's being withheld from us and that God is keeping it from us. So then, what does this mean? Well, if that's the case, if once we recognize uh, the nature of our own hearts, James doesn't leave it there. Because he tells us if you're going to thrive through trials, then you have to understand the nature of God's own heart. Verse 16. This, these four words. Do not be deceived. Why? That's what happened in Genesis 3. They were deceived into thinking that God was withholding something from them. Listen to what James says. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's saying, don't be deceived that God is withholding good things from you. Every good thing in your life, every perfect thing in your life comes from God. He's not withholding anything from you. He's giving you everything you need to bring Him glory and to live out your life in His creation. James is saying, don't be deceived into thinking you're being, something's being kept from you. God's given you everything. God, we just sang the song. God is always good. That's what James is saying. You're sitting there, you're struggling, and you're sitting and, and here's the deal. I recognize that hardships and trials are horrible. I have been in them myself. I, I, we've experienced them. We experience, all of us experience it. It's a common thing, as we talked about before. It's hard. It's gut-wrenching. It's painful. It's heavy. And you don't know where to turn. And in that moment, it can be easy to blame anyone and everyone and to start giving excuses for our sin and thinking that God is somehow withholding something from us. And we're looking at our trials and we're saying, Why, God? Why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve it and God is saying no it's for your good consider it joy why because it is working out a pure and mature faith James is saying don't look at it and say why God I've told my kids this I've told people this uh, for years when hardship comes you don't look at it and say why God you look at it and say what God what am I supposed to learn from this? What am I supposed to become in this? And when you're tempted to sin, don't say, well, God's doing it. No, he's not. It's your own brokenness, your own weakness that's drawing you away. So check that desire. Turn it over to the Lord. It's not his fault. He's not doing it. Why? James says, don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I love that. Literally, he says, because God 
gives every good gift and every perfect gift from you. That's who he was in eternity past. That's who he was in Genesis 2. That's who he was in Genesis 3. Guess what? That's who he was in Genesis 4 after the fall. And that's who he is today. He's saying he never changes. Everything he gives you is good. Everything he gives you is perfect. And it will always be that way. It will never be different. When you're tempted to sin, that's not God doing that. When you sin, that's not God doing that. That's you. And when he brings trials and difficulties in your life, it's to make you more like him. So it's actually a gift. That's why the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians says, just as we have been given the grace to believe, we have also been given the grace to suffer for Christ's sake. It's a gift. Because at the end of it, you're more like Jesus. You want to know the proof as to why? You want to know the proof? Say, well, what good? I am in pain. I am hurting. I'm struggling. These trials are overwhelming. What good gift has he given me? I love this. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James says, in that moment where the trials are pressing you down and you're, 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 you're drawn to say, God, God's tempting me to sin and, and I'm doing the, and, and, and my sin is his fault and I'm going to blame him for that and, and these trials are horrible and I didn't do anything to deserve this. He says, and, and you're, you're tempted in that moment to say, what good thing has God given me? James says, he saved you. That's what verse 18 says. He brought us forth. Of his own will by the word of truth. He says, you notice he says, by his own will. Why? Because you didn't deserve it and I didn't deserve it. You say, well, what good has God given me? If your life is terrible and everything in your life is horrible from day one to the last time you breathe your breath, but you're a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? You can rejoice because no matter how bad your life was, you have eternity with Jesus. And that's what he says here. He says when things get hard, things get difficult, we try to blame God. Don't blame God. In fact, you should praise God. Because it is working out for you, a mature faith, but also because he did something that no one else could do for you, that you yourself could not do for you, and that is that he brought you forth by his own will according to the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That, that God is restoring all things. There will be a day where God brings all things back into alignment uh, with him and his glory. And he says, you and I are like the first fruits of that. Uh, if, if somebody wants to know what it's going to look like for all of creation to be back in subjection to him, he need look low, they need no, look no further than a believer in Jesus Christ because we are like the first fruits. You want to know what it looks like for creation to be restored? Look at a Christian. Why? Because the testimony is simple. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, broken and searching and seeking my own will and my own desires. And then without any warning, God came from heaven, boom, and convicted me of my sin. I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I turned from my sin. I put my faith and trust in him. My life has not been perfect, but he has changed it forever. And because of that, while things are hard, things are difficult, and even in my sin, I might be tempted to say it's someone else's fault in the end I can glory in Jesus and that's what James says so brothers and sisters that's why he says 
count it all joy. Count it all joy. It's really two ways to approach trials and difficulties. He tells us this. If you, if you noticed it, you probably did. Look what he says. Count it all joy, brothers, in verse 2. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's one way to respond to difficulty and hardship and trial. The other way is to be tempted. Verse 14. Be tempted when you are lured and enticed by your own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you notice there's two processes there? There's two ways to do it. You can either rejoice and consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, because it is making you more like Jesus. Or you can be tempted by your own desires and then be drawn into sin. And when you're drawn into sin and you embrace sin, it brings forth death. There's only two ways to approach it, really. So then, believer, we need to resist the temptation to believe that God has any other purpose other than our good and his glory. We're tempted to. When things get hard, we're tempted to believe that God has another purpose. He's vindictive. He's mean. I don't understand why this is happening to me, God. It is for his glory and for your good. The temptation to sin. So I don't know that I've actively... The temptation to sin through worry, lack of faith, or any other sin that may so easily beset you comes solely from you and from me. God does not tempt us, for God is not tempted. See, our hearts, in the midst of trial, devoid of the wisdom we're to have, that's what he said in verse 5, right? If you, any of you lacks wisdom as to how to live this out, ask of God. But when your heart is devoid of that wisdom, our own hearts will tempt us. Our hearts will draw us away. They are the source of desire, temptation, and sin. Regardless of what Disney has tried to tell us throughout the generations, do not trust your own heart. Don't seek after your heart. Don't follow your heart. Your heart, according to the prophet Jeremiah, is deceitfully wicked above all things. God's heart in the midst of trial is that we need to understand we're receiving a good gift from him. You say, well, that, it does not feel good at the time. No, it does not. Anyone who says it does is, is crazy. It doesn't feel good at the time. But it is a good gift. It is a perfect gift because if we remain steadfast, the reward in verse 4 is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Believer, are you avoiding the blame for your own sin in the midst of trial and difficulty? Do you have the wrong perspective about what's going on? You'd like to say things like I said at the beginning, well, if you knew what I was going through, then you'd know this, this is okay. Uh, because, I mean, I wouldn't normally do this, but because of my sin, or because of my uh, hardship and, and difficulty, it's okay that I participate in this. James says, no, 
It's not okay. That's you and your brokenness trying to find some worth, some good outside of what God has for you. If that's you, believer, this morning, and you're pawning your sin off on other people or, or, heaven forbid, pawning it off on God, saying it's someone else's fault, it's not my fault, I, I, I'm going through a hard time right now and this is okay, it's not okay. Believer, God has nothing but good for you. If for no other reason, then you just need to hear this this morning. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, James is saying, God is for you. He's for you. He wants to see you grow in maturity and perfection. He wants, you, he wants you to become more like his son. He's for you. But if you want to be like Jesus, you have to suffer like Jesus. So believer, are you avoiding the blame for your own sin? Are you avoiding the purposes that God has in your life for your suffering and difficulty? The simple truth is, the call for us this morning is to repent. To repent of that. James says we can't say it's anyone else other than us. It's our brokenness, our weakness. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and you're struggling with this, turn to him, but again, he is for you. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Come to him this morning. And then there are, I'm certain, those in this room who are living in sin. And the simple truth is, you have the same tendency that even believers have. You want to blame everybody else for the things in your life that you, do, that you know are wrong inherently. Someone else, it's your, your upbringing, it's something someone did to you. And all those things are true, and I don't play, I, I'm not playing those things down at all. But in the end, sin is a personal choice. Sin is a personal decision to determine that what you think is better than what God thinks. That what you have for you is better than what God has for you. That what you can provide in this life is better than what God can provide in this life. But see, James says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Simply put, you're living your life thinking you have a better idea about how to live. You have a better idea about what's best for you. And the simple truth is James is saying, how's that working out for you? is it doesn't work out at all. In fact, it's completely devoid of anything. Substantive, anything that's worth anything because you were created for him. You were created to glorify him. You were created to praise him. You were created to live for him. And in the words of St. Augustine, Lord, our hearts were made for you. And they are restless until they find their rest in you. You living that life today? Blaming everybody else for your own sin? Restless, looking and always looking and never fulfilled. Why? It's because fulfillment only comes through the one who has his glory ultimately in mind and your good as his aim. So if that's you this morning and you say, I'm tired of, I'm tired of doing that, I, I, it's not working. Give your life to Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Cry out to him and say, save me. Trust that he made a way for you to be right before God. 
He's not sitting there waiting to say, ha, now that you came, I'm going to show you why you were wrong. He's a loving father with his arms open wide, ready to receive. If you will simply turn and come to him.